Oh no, she she absolutely loved it. She got uh, she's very political, very progressive. Oh, got know. got all of the bits and pieces of it as it came through. So well, you know me never to have been a name dropper in her <laughs> presence, <laughs> but I had one whole half hour show with Ingrid Bergman where we talked about the, the making of that movie. I'll tell you what. What I'm going to do is earn myself a post, apparently. No, I did. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go handheld, and as because uh, I have things for Robert, I'm just going to hand it to you, and I'll hold it for Dick. That's just ergonomically right, we, we work better. Yeah, it's that's 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 why I edit this kind of stuff. Um, all right, very good. Yeah, it's what's more a matter of uh, closing the distance. Oh, that's just the the back of the battery thing. It uh, you know you spend three hundred dollars on this thing, and the battery covers the thing. It doesn't work. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's a bit road hard, put away wet, as it were. Um, I, uh, I I I very much owe the entire style of how I do interviews. I I host uh, Q and A's at comic conventions. People like oh yeah? Stan Lee, Kathleen Turner, and so on. And I, I find that uh, that your your approach is uh, is what I have uh, to thank uh, a lot of my living well, for at this I'm point. I'm glad I'm going to find out what my approach is. You <laughs> <laughs> should be like looking in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to to start off with, Robert, uh, one of the things that I'm I'm curious about, uh, I I don't know if you if you take after uh, Mr. Cabot, uh, if I'm allowed to call him Dick. He takes out after. Me. <laughs> If you take after him in in terms of how you met him initially, I mean, this is a guy who crashes funerals, who I goes backstage at people's magic shows, uh, who 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 boldly goes forward to meet their heroes. How did you first meet this man? My first encounter with him was probably so long ago he doesn't recall it, but I was an intern on a shoot he was doing in New York when I was in college, and I was told not to bother him. But as soon as I had the opportunity, I started asking questions about Groucho, oh, yeah. and he was okay with it. So. Yeah. <laughs> and after that, we had a few more chance encounters before we became much closer later. And then I got the uh, great honor of working with the archives of the Dick Cavett show. So that led to a whole bunch of cool things. Now, wh how did he first come off to you? Was he uh, just somebody pleasant to talk to on lunch uh, breaks? A pushy seven-year-old kid. <laughs> 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 that, that was pretty much it. Uh, God, what year would that have been? Do we want to were you alive in 81? I sort of uh, just, uh, uh, just shy of me. I was 83. Really? Wow, I was 83, but I'm also the kind of person who knows who Dorothy Kilgallen is. Uh, I got uh, those so. What's My Line reruns. Oh, yeah. I love them. All the time. All the time. <laughs> I sit there and I'll, I'll lose four hours watching What's My Line. I get excited when the Fred Allen ones come on. Oh, those are the best. <laughs> yeah, that was right. I was kind of. That, that'll help me figure out a date. Well, you would know it anyway. Uh, when was I on What's My Line? It was not long after, uh, oh, the fr oh no, I was on Zweimal, how do you say in English, two times. And um, 
the first one and had just died. Okay. Would that be 50? Well, earlier, he died earlier than that. Yeah. Oh, God, no way. I cannot lie. Um, you don't really need to edit this. I'll just make it so interesting. No, just, just, uh, just go for it. That's I'll my job. Musicalize it. <laughs> I was on the third row on the aisle at a What's My Line while still in college. And I just sat there worshiping Fred Allen for the minute. My dad would not allow a word to be spoken while the Fred Allen show was on, on radio. And... Um, Afterwards, I stood outside the stage door. Bennett Surf came out, and a little crowd got around him. Dorothy Kilgallen came out, and a little crowd failed to strangle her. And uh, Arlene Francis got a big crowd. And then the great, great man, Garth Brandenburg, a little cold, slight lunatic, Fred Allen, nobody cared to stop him. followed him up to the corner, Broadway, and I blew it. I should have just engaged him in the way I often did, and it usually paid off. I followed him. I was too in awe. And as he got near the corner, two bums, I believe that's the technical expression, came out from a corner. Hey, Fred, great to see you. And uh, he reached into his pocket and took out two envelopes with cash in them and gave them and he turned back and could see me a little behind him, so he had a slight audience to, to which he could say, Ah, my fan club is gathering. Oh. It was kind of poignant. And I, then he got in the subway and went up to the Owling Court. I didn't know that then. I could have gotten the goddamn subway with him. Why didn't I? That's what you've been called here to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't care for Bennett Surf that much. The the least marketable skill I have is is uh, is a, an, an out of practice Bennett Surf impression, which nobody nobody wants you to pay for Bennett that. You can do Bennett Surf. Well, sometimes I can if I try really hard. That's very. Is good. this the one, the only, the very notable, the interviewer among interviewers, Mr. Dick Cabot? <laughs> oh my God! If you don't Fred Allen. Allen. Fred <laughs> Allen said. Bennett. We can we can do an episode of What's My Line just in the room. Fred Allen called Bennett Surf a tweed waistcoat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, looking at, at childhood heroes, I mean, I, I became a fan of uh, Muhammad Ali, I think, arguably because of the clips of your interviews that were the best interviews with him that people would rerun. Yeah, we really got along well, and we became very good friends uh, ten times more than I would have ever expected. A and, uh, yeah, those interviews helped his fan club. He kept, he said, you know, every time I go, they say, you saw you on Dick Cabot's show. I just loved him. Um, when, what is the span of those years? He was on from 68 to 79. And there were 13 shows with you and Ali, and then there was one where Ali guest hosted and you weren't there. Oh. Which sadly is a lost show. The tape is gone. Of course. 
Yeah, on vacation. I should have stayed and done the shows during my vacation. <laughs> well, then they wouldn't have been vacation. Yeah, you wouldn't call it that, I guess. Candace Bergen did a show and various people. Oh, yeah. Steve yeah. Allen hosted it a few times. Yeah. yeah. I think George Siebel even did it. I would not be surprised. And Carl Reiner. He was a pretty hip guy. Uh, did Carl Reiner yeah. do it, too? Never saw one of those. But uh, had Groucho done one, I'd have certainly seen it. You wouldn't have wanted to be found for that. Yeah. You would have been a guest on your own show. I would have tried. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too modest to say I would have made it. Oh, Robert, you've, uh, you've, you've done a lot of work uh, compiling and, and cross-cutting along themes these uh, these many interviews that uh, that Mr. Cabot's done, Wh where where did that process start for you? Well, in managing the archives, one of the things that was an ongoing problem was there were just so many tapes and they needed to be preserved. And we're working with the Library of Congress there. There are twenty five hundred videotapes of the Dick Cabot show, and then there's another three or four hundred on audio that where the videotapes don't survive. And in getting that library organized, finally, we we now have all the shows in place and ready to be used. And in looking at the great depth of all the people and all the topics, uh, over the years we've come up with a show about Watergate, a show about the Vietnam War, but the one that was most obvious to me became obvious to me in 2012 when Dick wrote a couple of articles about his relationship with Ali for his uh, New York Times blog. And that sort of got me going on the idea. And just looking through all of those interviews with Ali, it was just such an incredible amount of really unique stuff, things you didn't see Ali do on other shows, just a camaraderie and a rapport with Dick that wasn't with anyone else. And if you look at them, you see Ali tell his whole story in bits and pieces on several different Cabot shows. I mean, it even starts at one point where he starts talking about when he was a teenager in the Golden Gloves, and then he went to Rome and won the Olympic gold medal. And you could actually build the narrative of Ali's career from bits and pieces of the Cabot show, but what you also get is this developing friendship where they become closer and Ali becomes much more loose and friendly and playful with Cabot. And then it gets into them joking around and Ali has got him in his training camp and he's flipping him on the canvas and Cabot's doing <laughs> a wrestling move. It just becomes silly. It goes from incredibly serious and deep stuff when Ali is going through his troubles with the draft and the Supreme Court losing his title to something silly like uh, he's showing him how to use the speed bag and jump rope. So it's, it's, it runs a really interesting gamut. And, you know, you were there with him, and, you know, it's, um, it's really interesting to see change from that serious guy who came on to talk about not mm -hmm. going into the Army mm -hmm. to being just ridiculous with you at his training camp. Well, here we were, two men deeply into philosophy, and in the arc of time became two frolicking fools. <laughs> <laughs> on television, with uh, a lot of moods in between, of course, in among, sorry. Um, yeah, I really miss him because uh, I, I had a kind of, kind of unique fun with him that I'd never run across with anybody else, certainly not with um, Azel Harriman. <laughs> the late it's, it's just a lot of fun to watch Ali on your show. I just get a, I get a laugh just when he comes out and he first greets you, it's just, it's fun. Mm -hmm. There's something going on there. Yeah, we, we were always ready to go. Uh, yeah. Uh, but nothing else in my life really matches that. Um, for greatness and ad
adoration, of course, Groucho fills the same bill in an obviously <laughs> different way. Uh, I don't know how many fights he won, but um, Groucho was the perfect guest with me, and we became really great uh, affectionate admirers of each other. Well, there, there's, uh, there's definitely a, a good chunk that I want to talk to both of you about Groucho. Yeah. But going back to uh, your childhood uh, and and, uh, and and young adult life, yeah. something that that I found interesting, y you having been a gymnast, having been a gymnast myself. Were you a gymnast? I was. I was. I was not a pommel horse man like you. You were a far braver and stronger man than I. Oh I was. Yeah. I was more of a parallel bars and vault guy. Um, but I, I more glamorous. It, well, it was it was then. easier to fake when you didn't have a background. The audience well is wondering why we had the parallel bars here. Yeah, <laughs> and and now yeah. my seven point six routine. <laughs> I, I, um, we, we only had a horse when my team started in high school, and then they saved up money and bought bars and and the dreadful flying rings, which they were gone by the time you got into gymnastics. Well, uh, we s we still had the rings, but but they were they were still rings. They were still rings, but the flying rings were longer, perhaps, but uh, but it was a long swing out and a long. coach made us, though we weren't working in, in the meets, in, in competition, every piece of athletics, he made us do every piece in practice, <laughs> in workouts, um, to s just see what the other guys went through. And I was good on the bars, but I never did them in a meet. Um, but the flying rings were discontinued not long after that, when you, I don't know how many of guests occurred. Fly off of them into a wall and break your neck. Backwards or the back of the head or something. Um, but he made us, before that time, obviously, uh, do a thing where you sort of picture you pulled your legs up over your head, mm -hmm. so your shoes are up over and behind you, and as the moment of stasis happens when the rings swing back, hold for a moment, you cut your arms through and uh, lose your grip for a moment. Cut your legs through, thereby losing your grip and re-gripping the bar as it starts. And if it stays, if it departs without you, you land on your front <coughs> from about eight feet up. And uh, from the other way, fly off into the next quality object. Um, the rings were glamorous. They weren't that hard to do. They were just dangerous. <laughs> One part, one part rings, one part trapeze act. Yes, this is, um, I th the trampoline was fun, but it, it also was very dangerous. Um, the year before that, the Iowa gymnastics, and Iowa gymnastics high school, of course, who had been in the Olympics in demonstrating the trampoline, came down off his angle, went up to the right and on his head, the floor and died in front of his team. And then when gymnasts saw those stupid tramp take the family out and bounce on a trampoline places, which lasted for a few years until the number of broken arms, legs, and bodies, uh, I think, finally drove them away. But it, it's a great sport. I just loved it. And what I loved was being in shape beyond belief. <laughs> <You know. laughs> had to be. Yeah. And, and my coach said, you notice that gymnasts always 
the one they really watch is the horse because it's the hardest to work. And That's the true the test of, of, of where you're at. So I feel like a real man now. <laughs> well, I feel like that, that, that common currency that you had with Ali of having that kind of sportsman background, even though, I mean, you weren't a pugilist. You weren't boxing. You had that kind of training regimen. You had that kind of just absolutely shred yourself. I, I feel like that's that's what laid the groundwork for what you guys had. You know what? I'm sorry that just that you made me think at that moment. Why didn't I bring a horse into the studio and see how well Ali would do singers and uh, <laughs> <laughs> throw a couple Damn, players, man? What a missed opportunity. And they might not have let him do something like that because I even point, I point out that when he just visited the training camp, he's riding a horse, but Ali's not because in training for a fight, there was probably some restriction on him engaging in certain other activities that might cause an injury. Yeah. So I think if you had suggested he do any gymnastics moves, uh, Bundini Brown and Angela Dundee would have charged the stage and gotten him away from you. Well, the <laughs> <laughs> there are injuries with the horse because your legs are in the air half the time, so you fall on your head and neck if you fall off. And that, that's, that's why it has a reputation for being somewhat dangerous. One of the things that, I, that I'd recognize when I would see replays of the interviews with Ali separately, outside of the film, is it, something that became more pronounced watching the film itself was, was this kind of recognition of, of uh, I guess in maybe a collegial way with him as you were seeing him go further past where he should have quit than he probably should have. I could yeah. see that kind of recognition in your eyes. Was that something that was, that was in, uh, as he had become a very close friend at that point, was that, that something nice. that really, uh, it, was, it was difficult to, to stay away from thinking about that? Yeah, uh, in a strange way, I felt he was my best buddy in life, and I didn't uh, want anything to happen to him. Um, and, uh, and of course it did. Uh, he stayed on too long. I don't, he, did he need money, Robert? You know, some people theorize that he had to keep at it because of some financial difficulty. I know he was supporting an awful lot of people. Um, Michael Marley, who's a sports writer and appears in the film, makes the comment that he never saw anybody with a hand in Ali's pocket push him towards retirement. And I think there's something to be said for that. On the other hand, there came a point where Ali could have made a great living just being Ali and didn't have to fight anymore. Of course, the you know, huge paydays for a big fight were still going to be tough to you know, replicate, but there certainly was a point at which he should have stopped. And I know there's a very poignant moment for me when he comes on the show in 1978 after losing the title to Leon Spinks, his then third loss against, uh, at that point, 55 wins. Uh, you you say to him, Dick, you're here tonight to tell us that you're never going to fight again. And he, of course, turns it into the joke, as Ali always would. I know another interviewer gets paid for being an idiot. What's your excuse? But it wasn't just Dick Cavett. Angelo Dundee didn't want him to fight anymore. A lot of the people close to him wanted him to hang him up. And he just kept saying, people don't want to think that Muhammad Ali's finished. Yeah, he couldn't say that. Yeah, I mean, maybe finished as a boxer, but not finished as the great Muhammad Ali. And I think he kind of didn't see the great potential of just who he could have been without boxing. I think that's uh, one of the sadder parts of the story. Yeah, and there's a, somebody there's clever enough to approach him in that way about it and say, you know, you can pretty much write your own card in show business, <laughs> in politics. I, 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 I was thinking very much actively yeah. watching the film. There's right. a parallel universe where he was elected president. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
in going through all of these different interviews and, and choosing what to cut to between them, you've, you've seen these many times. You've seen many, many, many Dick Cavett interviews many, many times, Robert. Were there specific moments that, that maybe you had a different, a different layer of discovery to looking at them in this context of contextualizing them against the overall relationship between the two guys? Yeah, one of the things that really struck me, and Ali comes on after the three losses in the major part of his career. He totaled five losses when he was all done. But forgetting about Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick, fights he shouldn't have even been in, you know, at the very end, he lost the first time to Joe Frazier, came on the show a week later. Ken Norton broke his jaw, comes on the show with the wired jaw. Leon Spinks takes his title, he comes on the show. He makes the joke, Dick Cavett's the only one who invites me on after I get whipped. You know, nobody else wants me, I'm an old broken-down fighter. That's not true. Ali could have gone anywhere he wanted to go. He could have, after losing the fight to Frazier, which was the, the fight of the century, the most anticipated boxing match of all time, he could have gone on any and every show. He chose the Dick Cavett show to come out and show that he was a gracious loser. And it was handled by both of these guys really, really well. I think Ali surprised the world by being the gracious loser. And Dick was just charming with him. It was wonderful to watch that. Now, there was a moment in after uh, he had had a bad night the day or two before um, <coughs> where he's sitting there with the wired jaw and he would say, Dick uh, Cavett, you must be my best friend. You know, you, you're the only one. You're the only one to have me an old broke down fighter like me and I, I got wired holding my jaw together and I may be finished. I may, you know, you, uh, you, you're my main man. For a year, black folks would say, you know what a compliment that is, to be a main man and Ali's main man. <laughs> you could go anywhere you want and people would protect you, people would hold you up, but Ali's main man. I didn't know the significance of it, but I quickly found out. Um, now, he may have had other main men. I don't know. Well, I think you were the main man of everybody's main man. <laughs> That's yeah. what that amounted to. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Nice way of putting it. But he, he, he knew how to play every angle of his life, whatever the mood, whether it was a disaster, a lost fight, uh, a, a promotion in the world, or uh, an award ceremony that he'd had, or something. Some he, he always liked the very best comics knew how to play it, how to say it, how to stress what syllable, how to time it. How to, he, he had all the gifts of uh, Bob Hope or, uh, or anyone else. You'd care to name. Um, what a man. Now, I know that, that something you, you're legendarily not a fan of is, uh, is Q&A style. You know, what was your favorite this, your least favorite this? Yeah. A very different iteration of, of, of that kind of recalling memories early on in the interaction with Ali. Can you, can you recall the first time he really surprised you? Uh, or you felt like there was something more to the interaction, there was something potentially more there for the relationship than just, you know, guy who's on the show who's well-known and entertaining? I, I think it had to do with what I was saying there in a somewhat awkward way, but, but it was... Wow, he came on and did something that got a huge laugh. And, and I thought, this guy plays big league humor. Uh, I had no idea he was so skillful and so funny and so good at ad-libbing and so good at everything you need. He should have given us, had a university where he taught how to be a 
yes on the tax bill and get back, get invited back 14 times. And you, you had a, a moment like that yourself. Was it, was it on Jack Parr or was it, was it on Carson? Uh, where, where you got one of those kind of just fallout laughs oh right toward the end of the show? Yeah. Uh, you might be thinking about uh, the time that uh, a beautiful German beauty named Marlene Schmidt in America was Miss Universe, Fräulein Universe. And she uh, came on Jack's show, and he knew that I spoke German. And he, he said, I'm going to have you out there, kid. Could that be the thing? And he, I came out. And I think it was Gilgan. The Gilgan's Island joke? Johnny yeah. says, what are you working on next? Though? That's what, it, yeah, that, that was. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, okay. Uh, reel back that tape. We don't need to use <laughs> that. I was on Johnny's show as a guest. He, he, he was so good to me on the air, and I liked him so much. It was such fun uh, to report to the old studio in Hollywood. And, um, th yeah, this was in Hollywood. Uh, and it, it was a time when I wasn't really doing anything. I had played some clubs, and I might have been on the Merv Griffin show once or twice. Um, but... So here was a show with a full couch full of guests at the end, a minute left of airtime, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to say, what are you doing? And he said, how are you doing, Arlene? And I'm doing my movie, and he'll, well, he'll be plugging, yeah, he's plugging his new series, and so on and so forth. I actually think Johnny tried to stretch out so he didn't have to get to me, knowing I was doing nothing. And he said, uh, but he had to. He said, uh, Richard, uh, what are you up to? And I said, I'm... Uh, Actually, I'm working on a sitcom idea. It's a humorous version of Gilligan's Island. <laughs> well, he did that wonderful take where he laughs and goes off to out of the picture, the left side <laughs> of the chair, and <laughs> came back. And it, it was a godsend, a huge laugh. And quite a few columnists gave me the honor of misquoting it the next day in various ways, like, Stealing your material and rewriting well, it poorly? They just got it wrong. Uh, one of them, uh, Earl Wilson in New York, about whom Groucho said, the only way you can get Earl to print a joke right is to tell it to him wrong, um, said a humor, a, a, a comedy version of Gilligan's Island, which is the same joke, but it has a little less elegance. So elegance and humor, uh, something that Groucho Marx is, uh, is known for. Very uh, much so. A, uh, a, a fandom that the two of you uh, have in common. You are, are the, I wanted to make sure that I got the wording right. Four of the Three Musketeers is the book, right? That's right. Mark Twain's on stage. Four, four, four of the Three Musketeers. Three. So, yep. so was, was your, your mutual fandom of Groucho something I, I think you alluded to was, was, was what you guys initially bonded over? Yeah, the first thing I ever stalked Cavett about was talking about Groucho. And yeah. He was very kind to me at that point, and he instructed his then assistant, to make me a copy of the 1969 Groucho episode where he talks to him for an hour. And it was something that I treasured in the days before you could just go find it on YouTube or something. So I wore that tape out and I just memorized it. And some of the later Groucho appearances, I had made audio cassettes off of television when I was a kid. So I could recite them chapter and verse. So many years later, getting to watch them again was just such a kick. But Dick's been a very kind supporter of my, uh, my Groucho and Marx Brothers mania. Uh, gave a very kind blurb for the book, and 
I used some of Groucho's interviews on the Cavett Show as source material for that book because he did talk about the old days of vaudeville. Pretty, pretty good stuff on those shows. By the way, was that first one you referred to with the one with the gr- first time you wore the spectacular? The great uh, cap with the three golf balls with the faces yeah, on them. Yeah. <laughs> he had a fabulous golf hat. Did you ever find out where he got it? Um, I, I don't know exactly where he got it, but he wore it everywhere. He had this hilarious golf hat that seemed to be all, mo- mostly all white background. Uh, on the top were two little men, knitted little men with golf, <laughs> knitted golf clubs. And uh, then there was uh, one, two, three uh, golf balls in front of them. Happened that he wore it on a show with Truman Capote, and it was happened to be the show that Groucho decided to propose marriage to Truman Capote, and it did. Um, but but Truman's answer was something of, um, "I'm sorry, Groucho, but I could never marry a man who has three balls on his hat." <laughs> I don't think anybody heard on his hat the last ten was three balls. <laughs> Capote was another sharp guest, knew how to handle himself on a talk show. As a, a couple of people who know Groucho's work uh, really well, you knowing Groucho personally, is there something about about him as a public figure? So many people have, I, I guess you would say, maybe the the, uh, the 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 Hirschfeld drawing caricature of him as their their image of him in their mind having a deeper appreciation for him. What do you feel that, that people should have a better appreciation for? About? About, about Groucho himself. Maybe how intelligent he was. Um, maybe uh, they should be grateful if they had as good an education as Groucho had, all self-absorbed. Uh, he went to school in eighth grade, I think. Yeah, I think even maybe sooner than that. I think yeah. sixth grade, but... You know, Groucho fascinates me, and he's fascinated me since I was a little kid, because he really is the history of American show business in the 20th century. I mean, he starts working when he's just shy of 15 in vaudeville, and he works in every medium. I mean, he becomes a big star in vaudeville, on Broadway, on radio, on television, and in movies, and he just did it all. And he was running a pretty famous career for roughly 70 years. It's a pretty rare thing, and as Dick said, there's an intelligence there that is not present in most show business people. And, you know, he's a complex guy. I didn't know him personally, but certainly researched him enough and spoken to enough people who knew him that he wasn't the happiest of guys, but that's true of many comedians. A lot of comedians are sad people. I mean, Dick probably knows a lot of them, you know, maybe doesn't want to say who, but... <laughs> well, I, I'd be glad to. <laughs> no, but there does seem to be a higher neurosis and depression um, quota with Robin Williams leading the pack in a way, but many, many others. Uh, Phil Silvers, great hero of mine. Uh, I went and saw him in Top Banana, a Broadway musical, that toured, and I went to his dressing room in Omaha, and I got an autographed picture of Phil Silvers, and I bought a frame the next day put it up over my bed, and um, years go by, and I'm an extra, I got an extra job on the Phil Silver show, um, and I went over to him in the dark the first day in the studio, uh, I said, Mr. Silvers, I, I have a picture that I got from you in 
wonder how many drafts that Haley would say, oh, yeah, I remember you pretty clearly. <laughs> oh, yes, the one that I signed with a pen? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what, he what he said was, uh, so you're here to give it back? And I <laughs> said, no, 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 no. Realizing then that it was a joke. But, but Bob Hope came to Lincoln, and I went around the back after his show, his one-night show there, and he came down some steps, and I said, uh, he looking so elegant, coming down these steps, I said, uh, fine show, Bob. I was about eighth grade, and he said, thanks, son. And years later, I'm looking in the wings to be sure he's back there, because he's on my show for the first time. And I told him that story. He said, hey, was that you? <laughs> Maybe 15 years later. Yeah, I make a strong impression. <laughs> well, not unlike me reminding Rich of when I first bothered him about Groucho. I'm sure, oh, was that you? <laughs> well, some of the best uh, research material that I had to go with was uh, was your, your appearances on Gilbert Gottfried's pod podcast. Well, and you know, I I've never heard those. They're great. They're really great. They're there to be heard, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's a there's a documentary about him that just came out I've here recently. It. You've seen it. How did? Uh, for for it me, it was astonishing, I and I, was I've loved the guy forever. I love the Gilbert Gottfried documentary. In the interest of full disclosure, I too have been on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast because <laughs> he's a big Marx Brothers fan. He wanted to do a show about the book. Uh, but funny. lots of people in this room have been on. I uh, you know I'll, I'll get there someday. We'll, we'll, we'll put in a good word for you. <laughs> two former guests, but. Uh, you know, that documentary surprised me because I just couldn't imagine what it was going to be. And, you know, I, I can also tell you this. Many years ago, I used to work at USA Network. Uh -huh. And I worked on Gilbert's show. And I did an on-camera bit with him around 1987 or 88. And I brought it on my computer when I did his podcast to show it to him. <laughs> he just couldn't believe it. He goes, oh, my God, look how much energy I had. I'm practically dying now. <laughs> he's a really – he's a young, young old hypochondriac. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, yeah. His wife is hysterical. They're, they're so much fun. Uh, I really enjoyed being on the podcast, and I really love this documentary. If you get a chance to see it, you should. Gilbert knows how to annoy me. So that, that's what the experience it. was like, being put, put in the opposite seat that you're used to, where well, the guests interviewing you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he, um, he was very taken with hearing a tape, a very unfortunate tape, I think it was Groucho on a radio show near his death, it sounds like. And somewhere, I'll be somewhere, and from right behind me, a voice will be going, I love you, Checo. Will you always come home having lost all his money? And it would be Gilbert. <laughs> and he thinks it's so cute to be near death door Groucho Marx. But he has a huge, almost religious uh, picture of Groucho on the wall of his living room. And obviously a fan. Yeah, you know, the great thing about his documentary is it's almost like you see two Gilberts because he's just a devoted father and husband and he just has a totally separate life than the guy you know as Gilbert Gottfried. And he's even surprised by it, which I think is great. I mean, he can't believe what his life has turned into. That documentary was enlightening, as many aren't. You know, that was a really fun documentary because I like Gilbert. 
didn't know that much about him other than Gilbert the performer. So that was just a really interesting look at him. Is that documentary available online? Uh, mm-hmm. It's on it's on Hulu. Yeah. Hulu. Yeah, it's on Hulu. I think Mel Brooks and I are on Hulu. No, we're on we're on uh, You're on everything. HBO. Yeah, you're on a little bit of everything. HBO special or whatever it's called. One of Groucho's old shows is on Hulu. Yeah, we got we got Groucho. We got Tavis stuff in a lot of places, but uh, you know, you got to get this one somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, but before I ask, you know, what what the plans are uh, on on the same note of uh, Groucho and Marx Brothers stuff, I, I feel like it it always behooves me to uh, to say, well, for people who have never seen a Marx Marx Brothers picture who know the Groucho caricature and that's as much as they know about the Marx Brothers. Yeah. How would you how would you uh, recommend someone dip into the Marx Brothers for the first time? I always say start with the Paramounts, the first five, the ones where there are four Marx Brothers. I'm not suggesting that Zeppo is the key to the Marx Brothers, but maybe it's not a coincidence that their five best pictures are the ones with Zeppo. Just start in chronological order. Yeah, you can't go yeah. wrong with those early ones. I remember my dad trying to interest me in the Marx Brothers. In Grand Island, Nebraska, they weren't readily accessible. But they had been when he was growing up. And he said, I remember we went, and somebody said, you want to go see this thing called Coconut? And um, how people literally slid out of their seats laughing at this sort of thing they'd never seen before. And that isn't the first movie you'd recommend to somebody who's only going to see one Marx Brothers movie. And yet... Uh, he said it's a, nobody was ready for it. Nobody had seen anything like it. They were just knocked over by it. And, uh, and he said, you know, that brother Zeppo uh, left the act. I don't know how my dad knew this. But he left the act. And he, he would say, you know, when we had Zeppo, uh, we were worth a million dollars. And uh, without him, we were worth two million. <laughs> that was when, when the Marx Brothers were uh, negotiating with MGM. Famously, uh, Irving Thalberg said that they were offering them less money because there were no longer four of them. And he goes, don't be ridiculous. We're worth much more without Zeppo. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> approaching it from another side. <laughs> well, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about uh, that, that surprised me in doing my, my copious amounts of probably over-preparing, but, you know, yeah, I, as, as I think— as as I think you were you're uh, very well known for saying you know doing doing uh, the interviewer job the the right way you're you're effectively inviting a, a panic attack or a nervous breakdown uh, you know once a day or as frequently as you're doing it um, so I, I found yeah, myself digging around all over the internet and I found that that we we are both uh, fans of the same Japanese auteur Yasujiro Ozu. Yasujiro Ozu. I did not expect to have, uh, have 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 that in common with you. A, a shared phantom of, of Setsuko Hara and Shishu Ryu. Yasujiro Ozu, you name film director there. Was was Tokyo Story the the first Ozu film that you saw? Tokyo Monogatari. Tokyo no, mo, I, I'm sorry, you know, my my Japanese Tokyo is lacking. Story. You're outdoing all yeah. of us. Yes. Oh my. God. God, I cannot have allowed his name to slip from my mind. Chishu Ryu? Yes, thank you. Chishu Ryu. Um, Playing much older than he actually was. It's a character thing, and you know, most actors try to play really old when they are not anywhere near old. It's a little embarrassing, or it can be skillful, but you can see that they aren't really old, but you can make the allowance for them. 
but this one, I think it's one critic said, but he was old, old, old man, not with a beard, and not with any supposed accoutrements that make you look older, um, but the way he stands, and he's very slim, legs in place, you know, he moves in a way that an old, old man. Some critic said he was old in his bones, and he was 34 or something. <laughs> I saw, uh, I did a show, uh, wait a minute, what was that? Wait a minute, say something else while I decide if I'm remembering what it was. You, uh, you, you're going to have to tell me about uh, about trying to track down Tetsuko Hara, too. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, you went I looking that's for That's really inside material. <laughs> Tetsuko Hara, or Hara Setsuko in Japan, is um, a soulful kind of beautiful, loving uh, woman with a great, great face and great, everything about her just is instant lovemaking in her, in a way that I don't know of any other actress who remotely resembles her or has these qualities. Uh, what are some of the things they used to say about her? She was, uh, she, she was Japan's personified in some way that nobody else ever was on the screen. Tetsuko Hara. And I traced down where she lived. I didn't even, didn't even think she was alive. And I found her house in Kamakura. And on the way to the railway in Tokyo to go down to Kamakura, um, I t told the cab driver where I was going. And he said, Tetsuko Hara, ne. Nobody sees her ever anywhere. She's this Garbo of Japan. She dropped out as Garbo did, and she had still the peak of her career with and all those uh, many, many films. And you owe it to yourself to have seen Tetsuko Hara once on the screen. Uh, you can't compare her. I found this place, and I could tell from the two kanji at the end of the portal that it was to the, the property and two houses of the uh, a family whose last syllable was Gaia. So I thought, that's it, this must be it. Setsuko Hara's in one of these houses. And I went up to one of the houses, and I heard her thought, that's it, you can shoot me now. She came down the stairs, and I'm looking through the shades, the, the, the what do you call those things, the uh, louvers-like windows. And as she came down, her skirt sort of whirled out, and uh, I saw her descend, and I saw every part of her clothed, I mean, um, but her face. I just missed it, and I got scared and had to pull back and see through and some people come out of the house and they, uh, they were her, sort of her pupils or relatives or something. I never got to touch her. It was very hilarious. But I had a little tape recorder and I was, my, her voice was on it. 
I paid it to American Springs and so I went up. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> you got the ungettable. Gaijin, Farah, there's a foreigner outside, and they're saying they, and that's what so many are saying to the neighbors from the other house. Finally, down. In Tokyo story, a person having a party who sees a the only one who's nice to people and she just takes your heart away. Was that was that the first film you remember seeing her in? In fact, I think it was. Yeah, because it had a round in America for a while. Uh, yeah. So the documentary, away from away from my pocket phantoms. Yeah. What are what are the plans? What are you what are you looking for? Who are you talking to? T- tonight is the world premiere at okay. South by Southwest, and we have some distributors who are interested to come and take a look at it. And there's an agent working really hard to find the right home for it. So uh, we're at the festival level right now. And um, we're hoping to get it out to a wider audience very soon. That's uh, the best I know right now. I might know a lot more tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now, in the the process of putting this thing together, uh, did you find yourself, you know, in the back of your head, again, having gone over so much, Cabot tape, uh, looking at other other opportunities for things to do, other other ways to get this stuff out there because DVD and YouTube and everything mm-hmm. is great and everything, but there is there's this beautiful thing where I mean I knew the core story of Muhammad Ali backward and forward in many ways. I knew uh, a lot of these interviews backward and forward. I knew a lot of the details, but the, the beauty of it is in the context and the way that it all hangs together. You know, do you do you see other opportunities like that? Yeah, not many on this level because yeah. the Ali stuff is is voluminous and really unique. I would love to do something with Groucho's appearances on the Cabot Show, which I think would be really, really fascinating and interesting. Um, I mean, having wa- reading the phone book. Yeah, I mean that's you I, know, I that's, feel that way about a lot of the guests. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, just Ali could read the phone book and make you howl. I mean. Anything Ali does on camera is great. Anything he does on camera with Dick Cavett is beyond great. I mean, he just changes. It's a different guy. And I love the way he can just flip on a dime and be the serious guy talking about the plight of his people, and five seconds later, he's pretending to strangle Dick Cavett. I just see that, and I just, this guy can be an amazing chameleon, and he's just able to do that. And I, you know, I think it always goes back to you know the influence of Gorgeous George, where he decides to be the villain in the wrestling context, and he's decided to play that part in the whole promotion scheme, mm-hmm. and he's really just playing that part. Yeah. And every once in a while on the Cavett Show, he breaks character, and he's a serious guy. And I think that's different. You know, I don't see breaking character everywhere. Uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to bring up Ozu was because his style is so known for he just plants the camera, and lets you watch the nuance of people's faces. That's so much of what I see in this film between t- the two of you. Not, not just those bits yeah. that you were talking about with Ali, but I see it from you too. There are those moments of recognition, there are those things where you let your guard down in, in a way that I find completely different than really the vast majority of, of your other interviews, where he really, I, you said that he, he really was pretty much your best friend in life, where, yeah, where, I yeah, see, where I see those defenses coming down. I can see that. I hope know. you reviewed this. I <laughs> trust <laughs> trust me. I'm already I'm already 600 words in. <laughs> you know what? I think you've noticed something that I noticed too. But it, it was more obvious, probably to you, not being as close to it. I think when a guest comes on the show, he's in the mode where 
I got to keep this under control. I can't let it get screwed up. I have to direct this where I need to direct mm-hmm. it. He's got to control it as the mm-hmm. host. Yeah. When Ali comes on, he goes, well, Ali's here. Anything can <laughs> well, happen. I'm just going to have the reins. I'm just going to have a good time with my friend yeah. Ali. Yeah. I think it's less of a structured show when he's got Ali on because he just wants to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Dick's yeah. almost like a member of the audience on yeah. some of those here, shows. Here are the reins, Mohammed. You know, have fun with the stagecoach. I could sit back and use the back of the chair for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're enjoying watching Ali as much as the rest of us on those shows. Utterly and totally. A great entertainer. Lord, I think he should should have opened the Muhammad Ali School of how to go on a talk show. Uh, they wouldn't have been what he was, but uh, if, if he, it, uh, obviously it's unconscious, it's instinctive. He didn't ever say to himself, now how do I sit, and where do I look, and how do I stand, and how quickly do I deliver a line, and uh, do I uh, remember to acknowledge the audience as well as the host? Uh, he just did it all right, the way Judy Garland would, or Bob Hope, or any seasoned-born performer. I, I think Ali had this unique thing among athletes. He had this innate understanding of show business. And it goes back to that whole Gorgeous George thing, he made a conscious decision to inject the show business aspect of professional wrestling, which was just really pageantry, a, an absurd yeah. type of theater, really. And he took that and put it into everything else he did, whether it was boxing or whether it was going on a talk show. He played that part, and he was just masterful because he knew exactly how to do it with different people. And the, there was the nasty side of Ali where – you know, guys like Ernie Terrell and Floyd Patterson fought him and they refused to call him Ali and he's pummeling him in the ring yelling, what's my name, as he's beating them up and he's saying, you're going to call me Ali. <laughs> you know, yeah, and, you know, and you know, <laughs> then he's going to play around with Joe Frazier who also calls him Clay and they made a joke out of it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he knew what the show business angle yeah. of it was. Maybe he wasn't really all that fired up about being called Clay, but he really turned it into a bit of theater. He made it work for him, yeah. Absolutely. That's, uh, his instinct was perfect. Well, one of the yeah. things, I mean, I, I guess to, to wrap us up, one of the things I really uh, love about the way that the film portrays it is something that was incredibly emotionally moving for me and everybody else in 1996, watching him carry that torch, where, yeah. to me, that was watching his last fight, where through sheer force of will, um, you, you do this beautiful job, of, and this doesn't spoil anything. This is all history that people know, but, but, but the reason to watch it is the context and, and the emotional journey that it takes you on, which is yet a different layer than I had, being already being a Cabot obsessive, already being an Ali obsessive, is, is seeing that last fight as, as this kind of grace note to everything that came before it. I mean, d- were, you, were you sitting there watching the opening ceremony in your living room? You know, where, where, where were was, you? Uh, I think I was at the, out on the tip of Long Island watching it. Later, I was on a British Virgin Island, and I'd, which I'd been to a lot of times. There was everybody knew me on this island by then, all, all, all virtually all black people. But um, I talked to one of the guys who was a com- kind of a comedian, and I said, uh, "What did you think when you saw that with Ali, and, and when you saw the arms and everything?" And he said, "I thought I hope he doesn't make a joke about this." He said, we all cried. We all cried. Yeah. 
that's one of those things where everyone remembers exactly what they were doing, where they were yeah. when they saw it. It's yeah. one of those indelible things. It's like people of a certain generation know where they were when they heard that JFK was killed. People just know what they were doing when Ali lit the torch. And what was really interesting for me is I had my own perspective on having watched it on television. And then when I interviewed people about it, and guys had some really emotional reactions to it, mm-hmm. uh, particularly you know, Juan Williams, a great journalist and a really, really inspiring guy in the film. He's really good. And he is breaking down. And what I learned from guys like Al Sharpton and Juan Williams is that this was sort of like a closure to a certain era of race in America that Ali would get chosen for this great honor after everything Ali had been through and what Ali meant to different segments of the population. But guys talking about this on camera start to break down. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's an emotional thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is I did almost all of the interviews for the film were done before Ali passed away. And what I noticed is people spoke about him in the past tense while he was alive. And I think in large part what you say about the vision of him at the Olympics is that is Ali's goodbye. Because although he lived several years after that, he was essentially done as far as the public eye was concerned. And to people who loved and admired him, that was Ali's goodbye. And it, it was touching to hear yeah. other people talk about it. Yeah, tis true, tis pity. Yes. <laughs> so have you enjoyed your time in Austin? How has the city treated you? I mean, have you just been here and doing interviews after interviews? doing interviews, but it's great to get out and just walk around and see all these people just eating barbecue and watching yeah. movies. <laughs> have, you gotten to, have you gotten to do anything fun while you've been here, or you've just it's been working the whole time? No. Oh, it's Austin. Austin. <laughs> oh, it sounds, where we are. <laughs> it sounds so much alike. I've been asking people how they like Houston. <laughs> Smog's not as bad. I'll have to come back when the festival's not going on to actually see the rest of the town. I look, trust me, you need barbecue recommendations. Yeah. I've got a list as I long I as my arm. I've been here before, and I've eaten the barbecue. It's a great, ta- great city. Yeah, it seems it, it, there's an air about it that it's festive. I don't know if it's here all year. Um, a little bit, but it's, it's, it's especially heightened during this time of year. This time of year, it's got to be a... Almost a Mardi Gras sense. In a way yeah, a little bit, but everybody's going yeah. indoors and watching movies instead of yeah, yeah. running around outside. Yeah, there is that difference. <laughs> well, that's all I need, guys. Um, oh, well, great. Thank, thank you. you. Um, but I uh, yesterday I was I was over at uh, DC Comics's um, pop up thing and and interviewing Frank Miller for a few minutes. 